Hello and welcome to the Marketing Mind podcast brought to you by Campaign's editorial team and powered by our hosts, Something Else. I'm Shona Ghosh, technology editor at Campaign, and I'm joined in the studio by Kate McGee, associate editor at Campaign, and also Toby Coffey, head of digital development at the National Theatre in London, and Oscar Raby, a multimedia artist and also creative director at Vertoff, and he has produced documentaries in virtual reality. Hello to you all. Hi. Hello. This month's podcast is all about storytelling, um, which is something that, of course, brands and advertisers are obsessed with, uh, for better or worse. So we will be hearing from, obviously, the guys in the studio, but also the self-described king of gags at Pixar, Matthew Lunn, who his official job title is uh, Pixar Storytelling Supervisor. So I have an opening question uh, before we kind of dig into a bit more about what Oscar and Toby are doing together at the National Theatre. Um, and that is, what is your favourite story and why? Oscar, I'm going to start with you. My favourite story is um, The Little Prince Keeps Coming Back. It's one of those stories that, that um, keep changing as you grow up, as you uh, see different things, as you experiment different things. Uh, you feel like like you read it and it's part of your cultural baggage. But then you visit it again and it seems that, that the character that was sitting in the background comes to life in a different manner and it, it's channeling things that, that you were not seeing back then. So uh, time and time again, I, I pick it up, read it again, read a passage, and it seems to be um, bringing me to different places in my childhood but also re uh, reflecting different things today. Okay, so you've gone with a classic childhood tale. Uh, Kate, what about you? Mine's also a classic childhood tale, which is The Wizard of Oz. Great. I absolutely love it. Um, I was thinking about this, why I kind of love it so much, but I think I just really enjoy stories where you kind of go on a journey with a character. Um, and I love it when it's a kind of whole new world that you're being introduced to. So Wizard of Oz is like that. Similar Lord of the Rings is another kind of different world that you're involved in, and there's a kind of key challenge you're trying to follow throughout um, and stories like Breaking Bad as well. I absolutely was obsessed with that recently. And the idea of this everyman character kind of changing as he goes through the story, somebody you can identify with to begin with, and then that central question of how far is too far, um, following that through, I just find, find fascinating. So, so pushing a character's boundaries. Mm -hmm. And Toby, what about you? I think I will ditch the childhood uh, kind of stories. And I think... The story world that I revisit the most is probably Armistead Morpin's Tales of the City, um, and that was just always... Um, actually, Valley of the Dolls has just popped into my head as well, but um, uh, the Tales of the City, just the way it, you, you follow people through a whole kind of uh, lifetime, basically, and um, with each new book, that's an excuse to go back to the very beginning and start reading them from, from, from then. And also just the way that the, you constantly just page turning, page turning, page turning because you can't put it down. Um, that's always worked really well for me as a story. OK, I'm going to return to the childhood theme um, and say Harry Potter, which I know is a very sort of pedestrian choice, but I don't care. I grew up with Harry. I, I was his age, although as J.K. Rowling kind of released fewer and fewer books at the right sort of schedule, uh, Harry got gr gradually younger than me. But it's just for me, it's a very personal. I loved growing up with a character and seeing the challenges he's going through, um, although when he was going through his teenage phase, that was quite boring. Um, <laughs> 
We're going to come into some detail about what you guys are, are, are up to because you're collaborating, obviously. Um, but just very briefly, um, can I get you, Toby, to kind of explain sort of what you guys are up to together, what's the project you're working on? And, you know, the National Theatre and virtual reality are not an obvious connection, I think, to, to you know, our listeners perhaps. But, um, yeah, if you wouldn't mind explaining sort of what the connection is there and, um, and why virtual reality. Sure. Um, in terms of why virtual reality, I mean, theatre has used technology to kind of uh, help enhance how we tell stories for, uh, you know, a very long time. You know, take something like Pepper's Ghost, which was a kind of trick that started to get used in performance in the 1800s and is still used now. Um, it's just you people... What is the trick, sorry? So Pepper's Ghost is where you uh, kind of project onto a screen um, if you think of teleprompters, that's the most modern-day, everyday use of, of Pepper's Ghost. So in that scenario, the audience can't see what you're looking at, but the point with Pepper's Ghost is that you show the audience something that isn't actually there. So you're projecting onto a glass or plastic screen. Um, and people used it to bring ghosts in, and it's been used, like, people have brought Tupac back and all that kind of stuff. That's all Pepper's Ghost, effectively. And they say holograms, but it's Pepper's Ghost uh, in those scenarios. And... We, when we started to kind of work with VR, we just got the sense that this is kind of, and look at people's VR work, it's such a kind of incredible storytelling tool that we need to start looking at how this is relevant to theatre in the way that we looked at uh, lighting, uh, sorry, projection or any other piece of kind of technology that can help mediate the story that we're telling. So um, I think it is because it's so. People look at it as almost futuristic in a way, but for us it's actually just a really strong storytelling tool and actually we see beyond the kind of black headsets that people are wearing and actually just the story that's being told in people's heads. That's the bit where it's really relevant for us. So you two are kind of on a on an exploratory journey um, in terms of what virtual reality can do in the context of theatre and it's it's not that we can sort of tell everyone that you're producing a VR play, but it's, it's just your exploring the creative possibilities as Oscar is does that sort of sound right absolutely the, the, like Toby was saying uh, there is this kind of um, new wave or a new stage of virtual reality virtual reality as a concept that has been since the 60s and then it had another big wave at least in theoretical conversation in academia and also in movies and popular culture in the 90s you remember the Matrix the Lawnmower Man films like that were bringing up that that future from the past and now we're having that same uh, visiting again this this kind of feeling that that thing that we were dreaming of you know along with hoverboards that still haven't been delivered thank you very much um we are seeing that come to life again but the flavor the current flavor of vr has a lot to do with filmmaking and a lot to do with game design with computer games uh what we want is to find a third field a third turf um, paddock, yeah. Well, we can we can enter it, and not bring in all the you know the practices and devices uh, of filmmaking and computer games, but also try another field, another language, another set of practices, that of um, theatre. Okay, great. So some experimentation um, that will hopefully kind of emerge as the collaboration kind of comes through. Yeah, definitely. And I think. What's been really powerful for us this week, and this is why, and and exciting, and is bringing in lots of different people from in the theatre industry. So we've had designers, writers, motion directors, um, 
all different people coming in and looking at the relationship between VR and theatre and it's those discussions like we know so much more now this week than we did the week before and the creatives that have been coming in are then emailing or sending messages late at night can they come back in again tomorrow so it's it's everyone starting to kind of feel the footing of what can actually be done with this so it's like you know it's a very kind of fertile exploratory phase i would say so sort of conventional you know conservative theater goers don't don't necessarily have to fear that you know in a year's time we're all going to be sitting uh in the theater with kind of our headsets on and not able to kind of be looking at each other because we're all locked in our headsets sort of watching a play that's that's unlikely to be the immediate future is that sort of right i think that's probably unlikely to be the future at all for theater in its involvement in that way uh we've yet to find out what the right thing is i think what you're the, what you're describing there is probably more likely if it if it is a future to be future of kind of cinema um um there are there is like a vr cinema that's just opened in paris i think there's one in mm-hmm. melbourne as well um yeah our intention is not to fill the little littleton theater with 1200 people with headsets on for two hours that's that's not the end game but we are that's what the discussion is happening now is what is the end game Perfect. Um, so just to return to, to some of the sort of, you know, kind of basic storytelling techniques I was uh, mentioning earlier. As I said, we, uh, or rather my colleague Kate, uh, interviewed Matthew Lunn from Pixar. Um, so this was at the, the Cannes Lion Festival in France. And um, sort of just before I kind of introduce the clip, Kate, um, give us a bit of a flavour of, of what he was talking about sort of in terms of Pixar and its storytelling process. Yeah. So his, his key point was that they create stories that have to connect with the audience. So they're obsessed with making sure that their characters um, are realistic and have kind of human emotions that people can connect with. So whether it's a car, a rat, a kind of robot, whatever their central character is, they have enough kind of human characteristics for the audience to kind of engage with them um, and empathise with them. And once they do that, that means they can kind of follow the character on the journey and that means they can take them on the kind of emotional roller coaster that they do. Um, and one thing that he was talking about was their use of um, sort of data and sort of experts to try and help inform that process. So they come up with the story first, but then they'll go and speak to psychologists or cult- cultural anthropologists or you know people that have got kind of knowledge and study that the kind of human behaviour around the world, um, and they use that to inform tiny kind of subtle movements in characters' expressions. It might just be you know slightly dropping an eyelid or moving something up. And that means that that will kind of connect better with the audience because it's more realistic. And he was talking about in the early days of animation, the animators would use mirrors when they were doing their animation to see how their their faces actually reacted or responded to things, and then try to capture that um, in the kind of in the cartoons they were drawing. Um, and now they're actually talking to these experts to try and get those things very precisely to kind of those subtle expressions, those kind of micro expressions that just really kind of foster that engagement with the character. That sort of explains how they really go successfully for the gut with the emotional stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, quite interesting what you're saying is sort of connecting with the audience, but they don't seem to really uh, bring the audience in very early on in the storytelling process. So in this clip, uh, he's uh, Matthew's going to talk about why Pixar doesn't do audience research, at least in the early phases of uh, telling a, you know, constructing a film story. So we show the whole company, and then the whole company can get feedback. It can be something as broad as, I didn't get it, or who was the villain or I didn't understand it or it could be really micro notes like um, 
you know, the the expression on that one drawing, I didn't understand what she was feeling. But see, the thing is that these are people, the people we're getting the feedback from are filmmakers. Yeah. We're not getting it from the regular audience because you can, that, that could kind of work against you because then you're just like, oh, the audience wants to see more uh, raccoons with sunglasses that ride skateboards. Okay, we'll give them what they want. That's not a good way. That's how you make a really bad movie. Yeah. Um, so, but then six months, about six months before the film comes out, then we get an audience. We usually wind up in some town in the middle of nowhere, say, surprise, you're getting to watch a Pixar movie before it comes out, and they'll flip out, which is already, I think, doesn't work, because they're going to they're gonna be happy as it is. They'll give an A-plus on everything. But, but really, it's to see where they start to find moments are getting boring or not, not getting the information. Enough, it gives us enough time to still make those tweaks. So then after we show them, most of the time what happens is we go through a gag pass with the entire film and say, no one laughed in this area. I would be, a, I was like a, one of the king of gags at Pixar. So then they say, okay, come up with funny things with a monster right here. And all you have are these three props you can use. It's my job to come up with something funny for it, right? But that's the only time we get feedback from a general, a general audience. Quite an interesting lesson there of, of never, for brands as well as, uh, I think, professional storytellers of and never ask the audience what they think. Um, guys, I'd be really interested in your view on uh, what Matthew was saying, sort of, um, you know, not involving people too early in the creative process. And I think this applies to, to many areas other than storytelling. Um, before the podcast, Toby, you were saying how Apple are quite dictatorial in their design process and, you know, don't ask people what they think they want. It's Apple sort of knows uh, your desires before you even express it. So um, Oscar, as someone who sort of creates, uh, does, does this sort of ring true for you of not getting people involved too early in terms of feedback and what they think of your storytelling and, and where you do involve people in the storytelling process? As counterintuitive as it sounds, <clears throat> it doesn't ring true. Um, and I remember in, in art school having this expression uh, that everyone, pretty much everyone used, that said, don't paint with the studio window open because you're going to have someone coming in and popping in and just, just trying to see what you're up to, and they're going to deliver that comment. And that comment, because of the moment, the creative moment that you are in, uh, lands uh, not when you have your shields up. And, and, and it can affect so much of the, that original idea, that fresh idea, that you can later adapt, you know, when you do, take it to publication, when you take it to your distribution moment, uh, when you take it to an exhibition environment, you can adapt it. Yeah, when it's out there, ready for the public. But when it's not ready for the public, that's a stage that has to be uh, nurtured, that has to be shielded from the requirements of the audience. It's a, it's a stage that hasn't been reached yet, and I think there's something that has to be kept fragile. It's quite fragile, that's quite interesting. Toby, what's your view on this? I completely agree, and it's really refreshing to hear Pixar talking in that way, because effectively it is about the protection of the original creative integrity in a way um, and allowing that to get to a point um, that you can then 
if you choose to kind of validate with audiences. I mean, we, our audience research, you know, we have in theatre, you have a series of previews. So you've got 10 shows prior to press night and that is used that's where you gauge the audience reaction and then they'll do notes and so the second preview might be slightly different to the first and then the tenth preview is quite a lot different to the first one so that's the point at which you bring in the audience reaction not at the very beginning that's where the artists create the work um, and then you do some adaption towards the end Specifically in the context of theatre, as you say, there can be some quite, um, or what might appear to the audience, to be major changes between that sort of first preview, let's say, and then the second showing. I'm just thinking of um, the the Hamlet production with Benedict Cumberbatch, where they actually moved, um, you know, the sort of famous monologue around in terms of... And that, that's quite a major kind of shift with audience input. So, um, I mean, so in the context of theatre, sort of major changes can be made to the way a story is told um, based on audience feedback. Yes, and it it's not entirely audience feedback. It's also what the director is seeing on stage at that point in time, whether this is what they intended. Because basically, it's in, when you're in previews, this is you've probably had one or two dress rehearsals, but this is the you are now seeing the thing that you've been working on as it exists on stage. So there is some audience feedback. You get the sense of did they laugh in certain places or did they seem to get the story? Um, but also just the director themselves is, oh, that actually now I see it on stage doesn't work as exactly I thought it was going to do, so that gives them room to change as well. Maybe that's about a psychological shift as well because in the first instance you're creating it, but then when you're actually watching it, you're seeing it as an audience would see it, as through the audience's eyes. Mm. Um, and then that makes you see things in a different way. Um, and this is probably a bit of a ridiculous uh, comparison, but if you um, bring people around to your house for the first time for a dinner party or something and suddenly you see it through what they're going to see when they come to your house and it's that kind of shift in your own mindset that makes you see different things. I'm going to add something on, on, on that. Um, that somehow it feels that the creative stage resembles uh, or asks more about your strategy in the exhibition environment, the, the publishing stage seems more like a set of tactics that need to serve that strategy. So the strategy would be, you know, your overarching idea of what you want to say with this and where you want to take your your um, artistic statement. Whereas the exhibition and the way that the, the, um, the picture is hanging on the wall, the way it's lit, the way the sound emerges from the stage and reaches the audience, it's a, it's a tactical decision, right? It's a, it's a thing of the moment and it has to do with a site-specific requirement. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do all advertising creatives a favour everywhere and say to brands that you need to sort of butt out of the creative process perhaps at the very early phases and let the creatives do their thing. Um, okay. I'm interested in... Sorry, Kate. You... I just wanted to bring that up as well. That one of the things that um, Matthew also said was about the fact that the creatives are the ones that are in control of deciding the stories ultimately. Um, and so their process is that they get a director to come up with three ideas that they're really passionate about and really, really want to make. Um, and then they assemble a kind of lots of different people in the room to decide whether which story they're going to take forward. And that will be creatives, but it'll also be people that, I don't know, manufacture toys um, or think about the sort of cinema sales, etc. And they will all kind of jointly debate it. But the good thing about that means that you're not asking the director to kill their own ideas. So you're not asking them to kind of self-edit and think originally. If they're thinking of an idea, well, is this going to sell toys or sell kind of sell seats? 
they're thinking about just the story in its purity and then other people can can make the decision about whether that's a kind of makes commercial sense but ultimately the power in Pixar lies with the creatives and that's what they've done differently from a lot of Hollywood where it's obviously the money men that are in charge um, or women I should say but um, so I think that's kind of an interesting thing that if you want to make a brilliant creative product you need the creatives to be ultimately in charge of it. I think that discipline is good if you can afford it for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in what you guys are, w- would consider to be sort of bad storytelling because, um, and I'll tell you why I'm asking this question, is again, sort of our audience are primarily advertisers and, and kind of uh, creatives and strategists in Adland. Um, and, you know, be it because, uh, you know, their sort of clients get in the way or, you know, bad communication or whatever, there can be a number of kind of barriers to telling good stories through advertising. Actually, some of the worst storytelling that I can think of at all is uh, advertising-related stuff. Um, And you get sort of cliched storytelling or you get overly kind of salesy messages. So what for you guys makes kind of bad storytelling? And, and, you know, do you have any examples? Kate, let's start with you. Um, Well, I think you kind of just basically summed it up that actually it's... Often, the thing where it goes wrong is people aren't focusing on the story first and they're focusing on the product and the message. And that's completely understandable because that is the point of adver- an adver- you know, advertising is to get a message across or to talk about a product. And sometimes it's where that balance gets a bit out of whack and it becomes too much about the product and less about what you're actually giving to the audience. And I think that's about where it starts from that if you're not thinking about the audience first, then you're not necessarily going to create a good a good piece of storytelling that's going to actually reach them um and i think part of the challenge of that is the kind of loss of control over over the sort of storytelling um when i was in Cannes, i also interviewed les enfants terribles who are an immersive theater company um and i spoke to them about this because they obviously put on performances where an audience is kind of roaming around and experiencing different things as as they want to rather than you know sitting down and being kind of told what to see or what to think um and they said that the way they get round about around that is by um giving people the illusion of choice um and that actually it's all very kind of planned at the back so you you feel like you're going to getting to wander around but actually uh you're being kind of um steered steered, exactly steered within certain parameters and that you're ultimately in control of that experience um and you kind of plan as much as you can about the overall experience but it's those specific details that change so i thought that was quite an interesting um interesting idea oscar what's a what's a bad story i can i can tell you what i think is a good story uh which is the one that has (laughs) has many multiple registers uh, that that appears to be telling you one story and then at some point halfway through it halfway through the narration, you realize that you're thinking of other things and you're bringing your own life into it, your interpretation. So by the same token, a bad story would be one that that is a pamphlet of a message. It wants to be a statement, but it's, it, it remains in the surface and it doesn't engage any further than that. Um, it, it kind of disappoints because it just plays in its own timeline, the timeline of the film, the timeline of the play, the last page of the book, but it doesn't go beyond that. Um, those are kind of dead stories that are already dead. They, they don't go beyond the uh, the inert object that they live in. Because they're not actually tapping into a universal human truth and they're not allowing people to interpret it, uh, interpret that themselves. Yeah, to, to inhabit the characters, to, to, to yearn to live in that uh, landscape, right? Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. 
You know, they're very complex because you would imagine yourself, even if you don't sound like them, you don't look like them, even if they are different gender than yourself, they invite you in and you can imagine yourself in that universe. I have a slightly qualified version of this question for you, Toby, in that within advertising, there's sort of a, a kind of long, ongoing debate over whether digital specifically has been quite bad for creative storytelling because it, it uh, you know, in the view of some creatives, kind of waters down the big idea because if you've got hundreds of digital ads going out, it's not really, it doesn't have, the, it doesn't pack the same punch as a 30 second TV advert. So how do you tell a story through all these different media and channels? Um, as the digital bod at the National Theatre, what, what, what's your kind of view on sort of digital's impact on storytelling? Because it's something you specifically, I assume, are sort of exploring. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, to answer the broader question in light of how uh, you, you kind of refined it there, I think a bad story is a story that doesn't need to exist. So quite often what you get is people trying to put a story to something where it doesn't need to be there. So particularly within advertising, I don't need brands to tell me stories. I've got lots of other places, books, films, TV, uh, where I get the stories. Um, for, you know, I find Apple's advertising refreshing because it's just actually quite factual and it gives you a mood, but they're not trying to tell what I would define as a story whereas we've all sat there and seen a, a kind of you're 90% of the way through an advert and you're all looking at each other like does anybody know what this is actually for yet it's 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 applying storytelling where it doesn't need to be applied for uh, it's the wrong kind of tool to be used I think in terms of what you're talking about with Digital. I mean, digital is a really, really strong storytelling tool if you use it properly. I mean, when you're getting down to banner ads, etc., then that is really... I don't think that digital waters down the ability to tell stories. It's the format that we're expected to deliver that campaign to is restrictive in a way that it doesn't allow you to tell stories, which is why advertisers uh, and publishers are always looking for new ways to execute digital ads. So, like complete page takeovers etc etc and you know certain things coming in out of fashion and rollovers and mega banners and all this kind of stuff um and i think the thing it's more interesting when but it's more difficult when it goes beyond revealing a video so there's actually something with that interaction that engagement that does tell you something about the product um but i think it's 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 a tricky situation because people are often being asked to tell stories where it's actually not a story that's necessarily needed it's just a strong campaign message OK, well, on the digital theme, uh, we'll return to Kate's interview with Matthew in Cannes, uh, where Pixar's been exploring sort of techniques of virtual reality, again, something you guys are, of course, very interested in. So um, let's hear what he has to say about sort of, uh, you know, the way he views virtual reality. VR is at the place where early TV was, where nobody knew what they were doing. They had this ability to just film things. What are we going to do with this? And so right now in VR, you either feel like you are a ghost in a room observing things and no one can see you, um, or you're, you know, you're in a virtual store where you're purchasing things or whatever. But at first, when movies, when people were able to make movies, it was just a gimmick. People would go to a vaudeville theater, it was called a Nickelodeon, they had nickel, they'd go in, and you watch real people dance, watch a real comedian, and then they would project 
some animation or some film. It was just a gimmick. But as time went on, people realized what made it really great was when a story was connected to it. So that's what's going to happen is you have so many people out there. We're going to look back at this, and we're, we're, it's going to be almost humorous. We're going we're gonna to look back at this and say, oh, my gosh, can you remember when everybody was going to do VR? Shopping centers were like, had a VR team, and drug stores and car places. It was Everybody's doing VR. And then what's going to happen is the people that have the best story content will be the only ones that will stick around. So right now we have thousands and thousands and thousands. But that is going to get so narrowed down because sooner or later you're going to see that the ones that have a story connected to it, authenticity connected with people, those are going to be the ones who are going to stand out. Those are going to be the new BBC and NBC and those will be the ones. Interesting thoughts on the uh, the, the number of uh, stakeholders who are piling into producing VR kind of content at the moment. And obviously this is something you guys are exploring. So I'm interested in kind of digging down a bit into to what specifically you're sort of up to. And what, what are your conversations around virtual reality and, you know, what it can, can do for the theatre? I'm happy for either of you to jump in at this point. The, um, I want to pick up that, that um, observation about being a ghost uh, in virtual reality, when you're inside virtual reality, meaning that on the outside it looks like there's a person with a with a black plastic box attached to your, to the face. What they're seeing on the inside, yes, many times it resembles being a ghost in a in an otherworldly place. Um, sometimes listening to being part of a story, sometimes just letting it unfold around you. What we're seeing uh, in our conversations. Um, the conversations that, that, that try to explore what's, what's overlapping between virtual reality and theatre is that outer layer. What happens to the person that's donning the headset and how that becomes somehow a performer, an actor in that space. In, in this current state, just like Matt uh, mentioned, that no one knows what we are doing, it's true that it's a, it's a positive state in which we can discover these things, like what happens on the inside of the headset, what, happen, what happens on the outside, and beyond that, what, what can we do with it? So it's definitely not a bad thing that lots of people are trying and giving a, a good crack to understand what it can do, until probably some things uh, end up being you know, stabilised and we can, we can step on them and keep growing the form. This isn't the National Theatre's first dabbling with VR, isn't it? Just before, again, the recording, you were talking about um, Wonder.Land, uh, mm-hmm. the National um, Theatre's production um, of the, the Damon Alban sort of musical. So, And you brought in some VR elements sort of at the front of house. So could you sort of walk us through that and how that sort of informed kind of your ongoing uh, thoughts about VR? The When we knew... Well, actually, just to, uh, prior to Wonder.Land... Um, Oscar and I initially met in 2013 at Sheffield Dockfest, and shortly after that, Oscar and uh, Vertov's company ran a workshop to look at the software that you need to use to develop virtual reality. Um, and it was a weekend uh, residency, um, and it what it was great for me is because it just made me allowed me to understand is VR in the realms of the impossible for us or is it something that we can look at um, and it became really clear that this is something that we can obviously you need to work with skilled people who can 
uh, can do it properly, but it's not it's not so far away that we shouldn't be considering it. So that as a potential storytelling tool gets not put on the shelf, but is you know it's there waiting in the wings, and when the right opportunity comes along then we'll pull it out, which is, I would say, the best frame of mind to be in, rather than, oh, let's go and find a project that we can do some VR in, which is what most people are, are at at the moment. Um, the And so what happened is when we knew what the nature of uh, Wonders.land was going to be in that Alice is an avatar, um, the internet is the rabbit hole, um, and that Ali is a central character and Alice is her avatar that she's created. So people came um, and said, what are you going to do from a digital perspective? Why don't you make a game? Which I didn't want to do because it didn't feel innovative enough for the show, but also we're not game developers, we haven't got enough time, money to, to make something really good. But what better world to explore in VR then you know especially as an initial project then Alice in Wonderland um, and so that's where we kind of said pitched the idea that actually we want to use digital to give people experience they couldn't ordinarily have like we want to allow people to fall down the rabbit hole and be small as a mouse be big as a house that kind of thing um, and everyone kind of bought into that and it, it went from there um, so we worked with the the digital designers from within the show so the people that had designed Wonderland to be projected onto stage, uh, we then worked with them, 59 Productions uh, we then worked with them with another company called Play Nicely who then took it into Unity which is the game development platform that Oscar had kind of introduced me to um, and made a, a VR music video basically um, and it worked incredibly, incredibly well for us we did a physical installation front of house and Basically, when Ali is in school being bullied, she goes into the school toilets and uh, goes on a mobile phone to go into Wonders.land. So we restaged the school toilets and you had to sit on the toilet to do the VR, which kind of works really well. It sounds pretty amazing. Um, that sort of experience was something that was quite complementary to the actual sort of theatre-going experience rather than part of the stage production itself, um, without returning to that vision of us all sitting in seats with boxes on our heads. I mean, is, is do you see a time when... It could become virtual reality. Could become elements could become a bit more integrated into the actual kind of theatrical experience. Or do you think it as you know being always something that runs alongside? Or are you, are you not even far that you know that far along in terms of conceptions? That is part of what we're talking about at the moment. Um, and rather than saying how can we make this work, I think the question is what is the right thing to do. And it might be that we don't find the right thing to do. I am very, very confident that we will find the right thing to do, but we wouldn't in any way rush that. So we're, we're, there's no deadline on this. The, the We've got to go through kind of traditional creative process of testing certain things out, speaking to people about them within the kind of creative team, and um, when the point is right, then moving on to the next step, whatever that will be. But it's, it would be wrong to be prescriptive now about what exactly that should be. But I, you know, that is where the com the more sophisticated end of the conversation is going. Is that there will be a better, there'll be an integration between the two um, uh, kind of art forms, if you like. It's interesting that you said what can VR do for theatre? Because that's not the way that we're looking at it. I mean, it could be really cheesy and say, what can theatre do for VR? Which actually is a very live strand of conversation because mm. people in the industry are very aware of the uh, theatre-making 
skills and practices and how relevant that is to the process of developing VR. But actually what we're talking about is it's that kind of symbiotic relationship that you can get by having the two disciplines work side by side. I think it's interesting because VR, um, if you go to the theatre, you're getting a shared experience between the members of the audience and the kind of actors, and it's a live shared experience, whereas VR felt, still feels very kind of an individual experience that you're getting on your own with a box on your face, and it's not, mm. you know, you're not sharing that with people, and I wonder if that's a kind of a challenge for theatre to use it. It's a challenge, but also there's there's two strands of what's going on. One is the is virtual reality itself, which is what you make in a virtual reality environment, and then the second one is the technology that you currently need to use to experience that. And so, you know, how we experience VR in five years' time, for example, is going to be a lot different to the way you experience VR now. It's going to be so much more readily accessible. Um, it will be less clunky. Um, you know. We might be able to have headsets where you can switch from VR to, to IRL. real life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so that, that, again, will afford you different opportunities. Um, so uh, it's, it's both looking at the craft of VR, but also looking at the kind of technical, physical hurdles that you need to get over at the moment. And if um, isolation was a thing... Which is, it is, I mean, but by the nature, by the physical nature of the device, you get isolated. Um, a productive way of seeing it, a creative way of seeing it, is what it can do in a in a in a positive manner, right? What is that thing that it actually brings about from a narrative perspective? Does it bring about this meditative state of mind? Does can it put you in this trance-like state? Um, can we use that to? to suggest some sort of sadness about your lack of connection or can you su can you suggest narratively right this is serving to the story uh, can we suggest that by being isolated you you have found your individual state your, your you know the control and the ownership of your individualism those are, are, are questions that can have a very productive answer in narrative terms That's interesting. Yeah, so sort of adopting the, the apparent weaknesses of the technology to actually sort of produce something quite quite positive. What for you are the other strengths of VR? As someone who's created content, you are familiar with the technology. Um, what for you are the kind of really powerful aspects of, of, of it? Exactly that point of, of being being uh, on your own. Mm -hmm. I mean, at, at this stage, until we, we get the banners and the mega banners and whatnot, uh, we are able to have the one screen. And further to that, beyond that, the screen disappears. It doesn't feel like there is a screen that, that's, that's uh, identified by its frames and its content inside because the content is everything around you. Um, in the current state, it's a beautiful, blissful state to be in and to play with because you have undivided attention to whatever you're presenting to your audience. I think that's a very key takeaway, isn't it? As kind of in this world of, you know, even I'm sure in the theatre, people kind of struggling to resist looking at their phones or sort of being distracted. It's such a, um, it's such a valuable commodity is, is attention. So, um, and again, just to yoke it back to, to our audience, of course, it's always what brands and advertisers are looking for. Um, so really interesting stuff, guys. Very interested to see what comes out of your collaboration. Um, Uh, you know, kind of and how the discussion goes. Um, definitely some very interesting learnings for brands, which are mostly don't tell bad stories and let the creatives do their thing. Always a great learning.
Thank you guys so much for joining me. You've been listening to The Marketing Mind. I'm Shona Ghosh, and a special thank you to our producer, Nan Davies, and also to our hosts, Something Else, and of course to our guests, Toby Coffey, Oscar Raby, and Kate McGee. Uh, also Matthew Lunn over in Cannes. Uh, and you can join in the conversation on Twitter by tweeting at us, at Marketing UK or at Campaign Live. You have been listening to The Marketing Mind. Thank you.